Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC, on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance, or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. Today's episode is sponsored by HP, the leader in the world's most secure and manageable PCs. Learn more about HP's Healthcare Edition products at hp.com slash go slash healthcare slash US. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of new HHS rules, PHI, and health apps in the age of COVID-19. Ms. Rose has a very unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, and international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare, and security law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank, False Claims Act, whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. In 2014, Ms. Rose, who also teaches bioethics to medical students at Baylor College of Medicine, wrote an article, Ebola Misdiagnoses Raises Liability Concerns, and was quoted by MedPage Today as an expert in the article, Point of Contention, The Law and Ebola Quarantines, How Might Court Actions on the Ebola Quarantines Affect Public Health? And that informs her perspective today as well. On March 9th, 2020, HHS announced the promulgation of two final rules, the ONC final rule and the CMS final rule. The purpose is to expand an individual patient's control over their health data. It requires insurance plans to share health data with their patients in a format suitable for their phones and other devices of their choice. How does this impact provider liability in the light of the healthcare apps guidance issued by HHS? During this program, Rachel will explain two new final rules as well as the potential impact on providers, review the healthcare apps guidance, which relates to HIPAA liability, and provide suggestions for integrating the new rules while continuing to strive towards HIPAA compliance. So hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Thank you, Catherine. As always, it's a pleasure being here. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you back on First Talk Compliance. So can you please provide an overview of each of these new rules, these new final rules? Yes, I'd be happy to. So on March the 9th of 2020, Two final rules were released in accordance with the 21st Century Cures Act, which is also known as the Cures Act. The two rules were issued by HHS, Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and the second final rule was issued by the Centers for Medicare and for Medicaid. Basically, the primary focus was to implement interoperability and patient access provisions of the CURES Act and support the administration's My Health eData initiative. So basically, the overlying items that wanted 
to be addressed in these two rules are, A, putting the patient first in health technology by enabling the healthcare system to deliver greater transparency into the costs and outcomes of their care, competitive options in getting medical care, modern smartphone apps to provide them convenient access to their records, an app economy that provides patients, hospitals, payers, and employers with innovation and choice. So the three primary stakeholders were patients, providers, and healthcare IT developers. Rachel, can you tell me about FHIR, which is the standard for privacy and security compliance and which is referenced in the final rules? Absolutely, Catherine. So to implement and maintain a secure standard-based patient access API, the two governmental agencies have adopted using Health Level 7, which is HL7, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, and that is FHIR. 4.0.1 that allows patients to easily access their claims and encounter information, including cost, as well as a defined subset of their clinical information through third-party applications of their choice. The role also requires Medicare Advantage organizations, Medicaid CHIPs, Medicaid Managed Care Plans, and CHIP Managed Care Entities to make provider directory information publicly available via a FHIR-based provider directory API. Now, specifically, what is FHIR? For participants on this broadcast, they may be familiar with NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, and FITS, the Federal Information Processing Standards. Both of these are key, and it's because it's yet another standard. Other items such as ISO and CCM, which is used in cloud computing, all are separate standards. This is just another one, and it was specifically adopted by ONC's 21st Century Cures Act final rule for payers and developers. And so payers and developers want to make sure that they're using this FHIR HL7 version 4.0.1, which was released on October the 30th of 2019. Okay. And is there any NIST guidance on FHIR? Or could you explain There is that? NIST guidance. That's an excellent question. And the primary special publication from NIST that emphasizes this is NIST 800-63-2. Okay, and so where's the easiest place to find that? The FHIR reference can be found on the CMS website at www.cms.gov. Or you can do a Google search for that. And then NIST is found on the NIST website 
or you can just Google that particular publication and you should be able to locate it. Okay, perfect. And how does all this relate to healthcare apps? ONC's final rule establishes secure standard-based application programming interface, and application programming interface is also known as API. And basically, these are requirements to support a patient's access and control of their electronic health information. APIs are the foundation of smartphone applications as are commonly known as apps. As a result of the rule, patients will be able to securely and easily obtain and use their electronic health information from their provider's medical records for free using the smartphone app of their choice. So building on the foundation established by ONC's final rule, the CMS interoperability and patient access final rule requires health plans and Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, CHIP, and through the federal exchanges to share claims data electronically with patients. First steps were taken by CMS in 2018 by launching Medicare Blue Button 2.0 for beneficiaries to give them their the ability to securely connect to their Medicare Part A, B, and D claims and encounter data to apps and other tools developed by innovators. But beginning January 1 of 2021, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, CHIP, and for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2021, Plans on the federal exchanges will be required to share claims and other health information with patients in a safe, secure, understandable, user-friendly electronic format through the Patient Access API. What are the key issues associated with HIPAA and the coronavirus? Some of the key issues associated with HIPAA and the coronavirus are A, the disclosure of an individual's protected health information. Going back nearly 20 years and through the privacy and the security rule and then the High Tech Act and then finally the final omnibus rule in 2013, HHS and CMS already put in place protections for the disclosure of protected health information. And fundamental to those disclosures is what's known as the minimum necessary rule. So whether there's an exception for a provider to give certain information to a public health authority, whether it is a state authority, a federal authority, or even a foreign government who's working in coordination with an organization such as the CDC or NIH, the minimum necessary standard must apply and be utilized. In terms of providing information to a patient's family or friends, typically an authorization is required and verbal authorization is okay if someone's standing in the room. It doesn't always have to be documented in writing. However, It can fall upon the provider to determine what's in the best interest of the patient, as well as if a patient lacks capacity. Two other key items in relation to HIPAA and the coronavirus are telecommuting or teleworking. 
and continuing to maintain the technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirements, which should already be in a covered entity, business associate, or subcontractor's policies and procedures. And also distinguishing that from telehealth or telemedicine, which has to do with a provider or medical professional engaging in a direct communication with a patient for the purposes of treatment. The latter falls under the 1135 waiver, and some of the restrictions that were previously placed on telehealth, such as having to go to a specific designated facility and use a particular telehealth portal, have been lacked during this time, but it's important to note that providers cannot use public-facing interfaces, and whenever encryption is available, it should be turned on as well as the appropriate privacy settings. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, about the topic of new HHS rules, PHI, and health apps in the age of COVID-19. And today's episode is sponsored by HP, the leader in the world's most secure and manageable PCs. Learn more about HP's Healthcare Edition products at hp.com go healthcare US. And be sure to follow the company on Twitter at HP. So, Rachel, are there any exceptions to the new ONC and CMS final rules? Are there any exceptions to be, and you mean in relation to the coronavirus that apply? Yes, exactly. So, at this Point because there's a 60-day window between when it's published in the Federal Register and the effective date, and then there's a compliance date in the OC, ONC final rule of six months afterwards. There's nothing to report right now, but that's definitely something to keep abreast of on the ONC's website as well as the CMS website. Do you have any other words or anything else about the ONC or CMS final rules or anything else that you see that might be coming or things to be aware of? One item one item I would become conscious of is the previous bulletin that HHS provided in terms of guidance for healthcare apps and when covered entities and providers may be liable and when a business associate agreement is needed to be in place. And that we discussed extensively on one of our webinars. So if people would like more information on that, then they could listen to the webinar. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Okay. And those webinars can be found either on First Healthcare Compliance website or on our First Healthcare Compliance uh, YouTube site as well as various other areas. You can Google it as well. Okay. And can you talk about what the difference between telehealth and teleworking is in relation to HIPAA and the coronavirus? Absolutely. So teleworking applies across 
all industries and it's not specific to healthcare, but it basically requires that an entity that's handling sensitive, personally identifiable information and is doing so in a secure manner that meets the requisite technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. And in the case of healthcare, it should be the safeguards required by the security rule. And what that means is, as I indicated earlier, a business continuity plan should already be in place for a variety of different disasters, including a an outbreak or a natural disaster. So if we look back to Hurricane Irma or Hurricane Harvey, what we would find is that is what was focused on. A lot of people in Texas and in Florida had to resort to telecommuting, and that same premise would apply with the epidemic here. It's just on a more widespread scale. So along those lines, you want to make sure that your organization has adequate policies and procedures and that for your workers who normally don't work remotely, if you're requiring them to work remotely, you want to make sure that you have the same checklist and attestation being completed and signed off on. You want to make sure that you're installing the same antivirus the same types of VPNs or shipping of thin clients, and then absolutely making sure that they're working from a Wi-Fi that is secure and not unsecure. Telehealth, by way of contrast, as I mentioned in the previous answer, has to do with an interaction specific to a patient and a medical professional that relates to the 1135 waiver. And that is an issue that is particularly germane to healthcare providers. You want to make sure that you appreciate the difference between an e-visit and a visit check-in, which can be done by telephone versus telehealth, which requires a physical type of interaction whereby the patient and the provider can see each other. The other item that's associated with that is regardless of the code that you utilize, you absolutely want to make sure that you have medical necessity uh, under control and that you've documented whatever code you're applying to substantiate medical necessity. Okay. And how is the DOJ positioning itself to combat fraud related to COVID-19? So the DOJ has issued a statement from the United States Attorney General, William Barr, and he indicated that fraud and exploitation during the coronavirus pandemic will not be tolerated, and it is something that the DOJ will be monitoring. Subsequently, the U.S. Attorney for Oregon issued a statement stating that he is directing prosecutors to look into violations of civil rights, as well as fraud and abuse and anti-competitive activity surrounding the procurement and application, coding applications during the coronavirus. I know that you have some background regarding uh, the Ebola 
virus breakout. Can you talk a little bit about how some comparison and contrast to what's going on with this current outbreak and pandemic? Absolutely. So Ebola was discovered in Africa in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1976. And so it had been around for quite some time. It's pretty much contained itself within Africa, although there were four cases reported in the United States and one death. And that emerged in 2014. There was a subsequent Ebola outbreak again in DRC in 2018 to 2019, and there is, in fact, a vaccine that they're beginning to utilize primarily in three regions in Africa. So the difference there is that there really have been worldwide a couple of thousand cases of Ebola since 1976 versus if we transition to the coronavirus, although it also came from another country, but China instead of Africa. In both instances, it was initially transmitted from an animal to humans. And another significant difference is the number of people that have been affected by the coronavirus as well. There have been over 166 thousand cases in the U.S. alone, and then over 6,600 uh, deaths outside. Uh, most of those came from outside of China. Hey, thank you. Rachel, thank you so much. I think we're about out of time, but did you have anything else that you wanted to share with us or any other tips or advice or, or thoughts that you wanted to share with our with our attendees or audience? Just in closing, first and foremost, follow the WHO uh, five actions, including washing one's hands. It has been and it's still the primary way to prevent the spread of disease. If you are an employer, make sure that you post those signs and that your employees are adhering to that standard, regardless of what sector that they work in. Next, if you are engaged in regular business activity, please make sure that all sensitive data, including financial records and protected health information, is communicated, transmitted, stored in a secure environment that adheres to the requisite laws and standards. And lastly, now is a good time to make sure that you have a pulse on what is coming down the pike as you're beginning to adapt to the coronavirus standards and be sure to review the CDC, World Health Organization, as well as HHS and CMS websites regularly for updates on different waivers and actions that may be taken. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on to First Talk Compliance. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at katherineshort at firsthcc.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, 
compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind. And I want to thank HP for sponsoring today's episode. You can learn more about HP and their healthcare edition products that were designed with clinicians in mind to streamline patient care and optimize clinical workflows at hp.com slash go slash healthcare slash US.